it's become so clear to everyone that electricity is really the glue that that kind of brings all the different development uh, uh, sectors together. And if people don't have access to basic electricity and really productive use electricity, it's not just having uh, an ability to charge your mobile phone and have a few light bulbs, but you want to be able to be productive as well. People will continue to get trapped in poverty. And, and when people are trapped in poverty, that leads to unrest and it leads to migration. So this is a critical issue for, for countries, um, both locally as well as internationally, because of the impact that electricity has uh, on development writ large. That was Andy Herskowitz, the Chief Development Officer at the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. And this is the Power for All podcast, a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. I'm your host, William Brent. A student of law and foreign affairs, Andy has been deeply engaged on development issues for more than two decades. Before joining DFC, he was the coordinator of the Power Africa program, where he oversaw the addition of 60 million new electricity connections across the continent. Andy has wasted no time in bringing his passion for energy access to the DFC, the official U.S. development finance institution. Welcome, Andy. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, and it's a good timing, too, because you've been a busy man. Uh, in recent months, DFC pledged up to $2 billion for distributed renewable energy after the Rockefeller Foundation earmarked as much as $50 million to de-risk DFC investments. Uh, you, you also signed a deal with the Shell Foundation to get electricity to 5 million low-income people in Africa and Asia by 2025. So given the, the, the recent moves, I'm hoping you can just briefly explain why electrifying communities still living without power in Africa, Asia, and Latin America is a strategic priority of the U.S. government. So it's interesting that, that universal electricity access has been a priority of even the previous administration. Um, it was a priority of the Obama administration, then the Trump administration. It remains a strong priority, but for obvious reasons. Um, electricity is something that's critical to helping people achieve all other development objectives, whether it's health or education or simply economic growth. And that became increasingly apparent during the COVID epidemic, you know, pandemic, if anyone who didn't realize that as people were going and teleworking and they became dependent on remote working, um, as people are getting hospitalized and need electricity for respirators, and now you need electricity to make sure that vaccines can be stored uh, at, at the correct temperature, and just be able to conduct business from home as you're trying to social distance from people. So it's become so clear to everyone that electricity is really the glue that, that kind of brings all the different development uh, uh, sectors together. And if people don't have access to basic electricity and really productive use electricity, it's not just having uh, an ability to charge your mobile phone and have a few light bulbs, but you wanna be able to be productive as well. People will continue to get trapped in poverty. And, and when people are trapped in poverty, that leads to unrest and it leads to migration. So this is a critical issue for, for countries, um, both locally as well as internationally, because of the impact that electricity has uh, on development writ large. It's an interesting point that you're making about, you know, the connection between energy and access to it uh, and the, the benefit that that brings to healthcare or food security, et cetera. I'm, I'm curious, just before I get into more about the sort of uh, the details of how DFC is approaching this, um, is there uh, any 
thinking now within the corporation about funding Nexus uh, projects as well, um, so that you wouldn't be just funding the energy piece, but also the the bolt on that that uh, relates to healthcare or to agriculture is is that part of the thesis or is it just energy? A- absolutely, absolutely. So when we looked at developing DFC's first development strategy called the Roadmap for Impact, which is available online, we look at everything through a COVID lens, but they're all interrelated. You look at what are the key sectors that are most impacted, both in addressing COVID, but also um, for mitigating future pandemics. And they're the same sectors that are impacted by climate as well. And so um, this, we're getting ready to issue a call for applications related to this partnership with Shell and with the Rockefeller, Rockefeller Foundation to try to identify opportunities uh, for us to finance uh, distributed renewable energy, whether that's mini grids or micro grids. And it's, it's going to be a challenge. This isn't an easy sector. You mentioned the, the $2 billion commitment that we made. That's an extremely, extremely amb- ambitious commitment. And that's meant to be really our goal that by 2030, you know, can we get there? Because where the mini grid and micro grid market is, it's it really, really has been struggling to demonstrate commercial viability. But we all wanted to come together to see, could we give this the push that's necessary? And with the Rockefeller funding and the Shell Foundation funding, it should help us de-risk some of these projects. But at the end of the day, we need to be able to demonstrate that these business models can be commercially viable. We'll be thrilled if we can do tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in the first few years, because I think once we can identify commercially viable business models, they'll be able to scale. But I even look at what, what CDC Group has done with through its Gridworks program. They've been taking a long time to try to identify commercially viable projects, and they're, they're finally moving into uh, you know, the ESSOR project, which we are hoping will be successful and serve as a model for the rest of us. But what's great about this is that we're all working together. We're not being unrealistic, but we wanna see, you know, is this distributed renewable energy model truly viable? And we wanna go all in on it. You mentioned uh, uh, CDC Gridworks and the project that they're uh, getting into. Can you just describe that very briefly for listeners in case they're not aware of the UK um, uh, funding agency? Yeah, so I'm not directly involved in it, but essentially it has to do with uh, uh, trying to scale microgrids in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Got it. Okay. And which okay. in and of itself is a challenging market. Absolutely. Yeah. But therefore, you know, bigger, bigger opportunity potentially. So how much does how much does DFC exactly. actually deploy each year on average? So as as a agency, as a corporation, we do, I think, you know, between anywhere between five and eight billion dollars a year um, across all sectors. And so, so when we say that we'll we'll have two billion dollars available, look, if we could do more than two billion dollars, we would do more than two billion dollars. But just to be realistic, it'll probably be far less initially because we have to see if this, you know, our, our projects. We're not a grant agency; we're a bank. And we have to make sure that the project that we finance are commercially sustainable. And we can try to use these blended financing tools like the Rockefeller uh, money and the Shell money to try to make, you know, kind of nudge the market to demonstrate that that projects can be commercially viable. But we're not just giving away grants to make this happen, because the idea that you often hear people talk about is this leapfrog. And when people talk about the leapfrog, it drives me absolutely bananas because this isn't the same as a mobile phone. Mini grids and micro grids still have to connect wires from the mini grid to a person's house. 
it's, it's just, it's very different. And the problem is, is when you're not producing electricity at large scale, just the costs are higher as well. And when you're doing it in remote areas, often the people who are consuming the electricity can't afford to pay those higher tariffs as well. So it's a very, very challenging model. It's one that we hope that we can support and test. Even when I go back to my time with Power Africa, one of the things that we did, Power Africa um, uh, ran a grant program to test the business model for these types of distributed renewable energy projects in, um, in refugee settlements and camps in Kenya and Uganda. And part of the idea was to see in a more controlled environment where there's some level of income stream, are you able to demonstrate commercial viability and can you tweak your business model so that it become more efficient? So we're, we're all very much in still the learning mode, but what's great is that we all are working together to see what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, just so I can put this in, in my own mind, uh, you said that you deploy about five to eight billion annually. If, if you're talking about up to two billion for distributed renewables over 10 years, at five billion dollars, that would be on average about two hundred and fifty million dollars, or five percent of your total budget per year. Or not well, I, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call. Look, I would think of it term, more terms of scaling, right? You're talking about a really a nascent sector. So think about compare it to the solar home system business, and that's what I like to do because the solar where the solar home system business was, you know, ten years ago, it was very small, but each year it grew more and more. And it's, as it scales, it can grow more and more. So our hope is that you'll start to see like an ex if this works and we can demonstrate models, you'll start to see that scaling. So towards the back end, we'd have much more. The DFC has a $60 billion ceiling for financing. So we're only using up about $30 billion of our ceiling. Let's hope we have the problem that there's gonna be too much deal flow in this area. But um, really, I mean, at this point, from a practical standpoint, there's not really a limit to what we can do. It really comes down to whether or not they're going to be bankable projects. And this is why we're working with philanthropy and development organizations like Power Africa, as well at USAID and the U.S. government initiative to see how we can provide as much technical support and financial support to help build this industry. Yeah, that was my next question, because, I mean, essentially you're saying the absorption capacity for that you know, bigger amount of money just isn't there right now. There aren't enough bankable, commercially viable projects. So, I mean, you talked about technical assistance. How, what does what what does that mean exactly when you're when you're trying to create more absorption capacity? What is that? Well, well, so so this, so this think about it. So we're not going to you're not going to get to scale by financing two or three microgrids. You get to scale when you're financing a hundred or a thousand microgrids. That allows the production of the equipment to you know, cost to come down because you're manufacturing at scale, um, you just get greater efficiencies. You're almost creating a, a, a mini utility. So our hope is that we'll eventually, prices will come down as the projects get larger and larger and more communities get are, are reached. Um, and then on the technical assistance side, it's, it's you know, Power Africa's got, their, it's beyond the grid program with a lot of technical advisors who've been watching the space closely. Because it's a nascent industry, You've got companies that have never gotten financing from a DFI before. So it may be that they just even need help preparing a business plan um, to make sure that they are, in fact, good uh, potential clients. And then even on the back end, from the DFI standpoint, um, they're not familiar with the industry. Uh, DFC hasn't really funded microgrids before. 
So it's partly educating the, the financial sector, whether it's a DFC or a commercial bank, about how to evaluate companies that are coming to you in their projects, because you're going to evaluate them very differently than you might evaluate a solar home system company or an IPP. Yeah. So related to that, I mean, there are typically two types of companies in the market today, ones that were probably early, early in, which were mostly started by foreign nationals who were, you know, working in Africa or Asia. Uh, but you're seeing increasingly that uh, the development community, uh, social impact investors and others are, are wanting to invest more in, in indigenous entrepreneurs. Um, so besides the technical assistance that I'm sure all of the entrepreneurs need, need whether foreign or, or local, there's also a need for, especially for those, those local companies, for local currency financing. Uh, and that's a big barrier that, that's been identified by a number of, of key actors in the market. How, how are you guys addressing that? So, so DFC has the ability to provide local currency financing. It's a very expensive tool for us. So uh, if you're financing something over a 20-year period and you can predict that the local currency is going to devalue significantly against the U.S. dollar, to the extent that DFC provides that local currency financing, we're taking on a significant financial risk. And this is an issue that, that in fact, just before you and I started talking, I was having a conversation with people about that. At the end of the day, though, we're a development agency. We are a public development finance institution, and our goal is development. And what we don't want to do is saddle the end user, the beneficiary, with that additional cost. So we have to figure this out. We have to figure out how do you make sure that the person who currently might take advantage of, of buying electricity from a microgrid, if that microgrid is still in place 10, 15 years from now and the local currency is devalued against the dollar, that their cost of electricity doesn't double or triple because of currency, um, the changes in currency. So, so part of DFC's goal, and this is in our roadmap for impact as well, is trying to diversify our client base, which means um, trying to find local businesses as our clients. In fact, DFC has been doing town halls, virtual town halls with U.S. embassies all across Africa, where we have them identify 50 to 100 local companies so that we can educate them about DFC's tools and how to do business with us, because we're strongly committed towards the sustainable development uh, of countries in Africa and elsewhere. We did one yesterday with Haiti as well, with Asian companies. So part of DFC's mandate is what, you know, one of the changes is that OPIC had this U.S. nexus requirement. DFC doesn't have that requirement. We still have a preference for trying to do uh, business with clients that have some U.S. nexus, but it's not required. We have a very strong development mandate, and we want to make sure that we are diversifying our client base to meet that mandate. Well, that's fantastic to hear, and I'm sure that our listeners will be excited to hear that as well, Andy. I love the whole idea of, of educating through town halls, and it's great that you're doing that. Uh, I guess my last question is is related to, you know, so how, how we're measuring progress on energy access. And I mentioned at the start that, you know, during your tenure at Power Africa, you oversaw the addition of 60 million new electricity connections in Africa. There's been, I think, increasing... Uh, question mark around whether connections is is the best metric for tracking progress on energy access. Uh, and, and it continues to be, I think, the primary metric. And it's also how people are approaching results-based financing by providing, you know, CapEx 
support for con- each connection, right? But I think you could make a strong argument, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, for you know, basing progress on energy access on serv- service level instead. Um, would you agree with that? And, and do you think we need to be thinking about it differently? So, yeah, a- absolutely. I, you need both. You need both. There's tremendous value in a person getting access to an electric lantern um, if they've been using kerosene their whole lives. And, and that's a good first step. But ultimately, what we should be working towards is productive use electricity. And this is part of the idea behind the work that we've been doing with Rockefeller, Shell, and CDC Group, World Bank, IFC, and others, where we're all agreeing that as we enter into this partnership at Rockefeller has been, conven- been convening, that we all want to work towards much higher level productive use. And the other thing that people forget about all the time, and it's important for people who are outside of the space to understand this, so I encourage the listeners who work in this space generally, because you're listening to me, but to explain this to other people that just because a person has access to basic electricity, you can watch a television and charge your mobile phone and do other things, that heat and cooling and basically cooking is so energy intensive that we can't forget about that. I mean, it's one thing to say that there are nearly a billion people who don't have access to electricity, but the other thing, the other key aspect of energy is cooking, and you have three billion people who are cooking with biomass and charcoal, and they will continue to do that for another 40 years unless we look at the entire energy picture and figure out how do you get people to to use uh, other more modern uh, cooking methods. And so it's critical that we tackle both of these issues because if we're trying to uh, tackle the climate goals, it's all well and good that people will have small solar panels on their homes to to charge their cell phones and watch TV and laptops and things like that. But if people for the next 3 billion people on the planet for the next 40 years are cutting down trees for charcoal, We've got a serious problem on our hands. We have to yeah, tackle all agreed, of these. 100%. Um, Andy, so if people do want to find out more about the work that you're doing on energy access, whether it's electricity or cooking related, uh, where do they find out more information? Well, there's uh, plenty of information on, on, well, I would encourage people to look specifically at, at Power Africa's website, which they can find on uh, USA.gov or just Google Power Africa. There's a lot of information there. DFC has some information as well, but we're one of the many agencies that uh, the U.S. government and the U.S. government that supports Power Africa's Great. work. All right, Andy. Well, uh, I'm very grateful for your time. You know, it's exciting to see the, the the sort of momentum that you've brought around this issue since you joined DFC, and we'll be looking forward to even more progress. Thanks so much for joining us. Great, thank you. It was great being here. Thanks, everyone, for listening. A reminder that you can find a wealth of sector news, analysis, and data on our website, powerforall.org, and our platform for energy access knowledge, which we call PEAK, P-E-A-K. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter and other updates. And if you feel like making a tax-deductible contribution to Power for All, you can do so from our homepage. Speak with you soon on the next episode of Power for All.